glorious day. It's so so beautiful. It's such beautiful weather here in Florida, in the springtime, and all of the happenings that are taking place today is just. My heart is so glad because of God's grace. God is good to us. Um, I want to uh, look to John chapter 12 today. So uh, be turning there. Uh, I'll, I'll read it as we go along. Uh, but just turn there and have it, have it ready or scroll there. Um, so, uh, so you'll be ready to read the text as we, as we move along. But today, as uh, Chuck has already mentioned, is uh, the day Christians call Palm Sunday. And uh, it's, it's significant for a multitude of reasons, but today is the beginning of uh, what we call Holy Week. This is the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and, uh, and then resurrection. And on Palm Sunday, on this day, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. And as he is riding in on a donkey, riding into Jerusalem, people begin to gather in the streets waving palm branches and uh, shouting shouts of praise and acclamation. And this is what we call, again, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, coming from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. There is something paradoxical about the crowd to, uh, uh, that marks Palm Sunday, and that is that the same crowd that cried Hosanna this day in less than a week, many of the folks of that same crowd would be crying, crucify him. And it has a lot to do, much to do with the fact that the crowds misunderstood. So many people in the crowd misunderstood or really just outright rejected who Jesus truly is. And I think John 12 captures all of that in contrast to who Jesus is. And so I want us to move our way through uh, the better part of John 12 today and to see who Jesus is presented to be in this, in this chapter in, in God's Word. The crowd shout, Hosanna! This opens up in verse 12 and 13 of John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the stage is set here. Large, large crowds would be gathering early in Jerusalem in preparation for the celebration of Passover. And there were a lot of people that would anticipate Jesus attending the feast of Passover. And so there's some buzz going around in the streets of Jerusalem. And then they look and see Jesus coming into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. 
And that's when the crowd begins to gather and they begin to wave palm branches and run out to meet him. And as, as they did this, they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this exclamation, this shout of adoration has a great deal of significance and not least of which has to do with the fact that it is actually a quote from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Let me read that to you. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of of the Lord. So Psalm 18 or 118 rather is the is the closing verse of a uh, song that encompasses Psalm 113 through 118 called the Hallel. And it's saying every morning by the temple choir during Jewish festivals. So this song would have been sung perhaps even as folks were gathered in uh, for the celebration of Passover. And during the singing of Psalm 118, every male in attendance there would wave a bundle of branches once the choir reached the Hosanna, or save us, O Lord, portion of this closing verse uh, of the Hallel found in verse 25 of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, the whole chapter is a royal processional psalm, and it celebrates the ultimate sign of Yahweh, uh, or I'm sorry, the ultimate reign of Yahweh through this king and anticipates a Davidic representative who will rule after the pattern of David. So John, what he is doing here in quoting Psalm 118 is clearly identifying Jesus with the messianic king and son of David, that would be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, specifically even this Old Testament prophecy. Matthew is even more explicit in his recount of the happenings on that day when he has the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, this Davidic king. So here is the Messiah king coming into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives with shouts of acclamations that he is the anticipated son of David. He is the Messiah King that would rule over Israel forever. And it doesn't stop there because John continues this messianic king imagery in the verses that follow. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So John gives a description of how Jesus came into Jerusalem, and it further portrays that image of Jesus as messianic king. John says the disciples understand this after the fact, after Jesus is resurrected and glorified. And Matthew says that this happened in fulfillment of 
prophecy. The prophecy of John and Matthew that both John and Matthew reference here is Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. And he is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the prophecy here in Zechariah 9 reveals a king who will, he, he will come in humility and peace. He is a king of humility, a king of peace. And this contrast with the political warrior Messiah that it appears most of the Israelites were expecting and hoping for in this figure of Jesus. Rather, Jesus is a humble shepherd king who is coming into Jerusalem to assume his rightful place as the one who will sit on David's throne forever and lead God's people humbly and peacefully. Jewish people and perhaps especially the leaders, were, they were anticipating something different. They were anticipating someone who would come and rule with power, who would overthrow their Roman oppressors, who would fulfill their nationalistic hopes. However, Jesus would communicate in his trial for crucifixion that he had not come for a kingdom to establish a worldly kingdom. His kingdom was not of this world. He says, if it were of this world, he would rule in the way that the people and leaders hope for. Jesus says this in John chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say that about me? Say it to you about me. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If Jesus' king were an earthly kingdom, no doubt his subjects would overthrow the powers that were currently oppressing the Israelites. Indeed, Jesus says that if his kingdom were of this world, his followers would be fighting to ensure that he wasn't delivered over to the Jews to be tried and put to death. But Jesus goes on to emphasize that he is a king, even that he is the king of the Jews. But he 
denies, what he is denying is that he has come to rule in the earthly way the Jews expected him to. Jesus says plainly that his kingship is immediately connected to his purpose for being born and coming into the world. You say that I'm a king. The whole reason I came into this world was for this purpose. And Jesus says that he has come to bear witness at least partly to the truth that he is king of those who listen to his voice. He's not only king of a, nas a national people, but he is king of a people who will hear his voice, who will listen to him. And this, of course, points to the fact that Jesus is more than an earthly king of an earthly Jewish kingdom. And we can look back to the text to see John communicating this very thing in his recounting of the events following the triumphal entry. Verse 20 through 24 of John chapter 12. And verses 31 through 33 communicate that I'll read those to you. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John is communicating here that Jesus is not the kind of kings the, the Jews were expecting. And he links that idea with a, Greek, uh, with a group of Greeks or Gentiles seeking to see Jesus. When Andrew and Philip brought the report to Jesus, Jesus gives a Kind of a strange answer if you're, if you're just reading it plainly, especially a strange answer to them, saying that his hour to be glorified has now come. And then he gives an analogy of a seed dying in the ground only to spring up and bear much fruit. So we're thinking this Messiah King is communicating his kingdom is not of this world. Then we have some Greeks wishing to see Jesus. And then Jesus says that uh, he gives this analogy of a seed dying and springing up to bear fruit. The story goes on to show that Jesus then prays to the Father and the Father answers audibly and thunderously. So much so that folks were like, what, what just happened? Somebody was saying it was thundering. And Jesus then goes on to say that that the world is judged, that the ruler of the world would be cast out. And so we're beginning to get a picture of a king casting out another ruler, taking over the kingdom of this ruler. And then he says, I will be lifted up and thereby draw all kinds of people to myself. So I believe in connection with the triumphal entry and what we know as, as Passion Week, Jesus is communicating at least two things. And first, Jesus is communicating 
how he would conquer and become king. And second, Jesus is communicating the extent of his rule or who Jesus would be king over. So, how Jesus conquers. First, John shows us that Jesus, Jesus doesn't conquer with war. He doesn't conquer with political force or political prowess. No, he is the lowly and humble king of Zechariah's prophecy. However, his humility and lowliness doesn't take away from Jesus' kingship. He is a legitimate king with a real kingdom. I would even say that he is the ultimate king with the ultimate kingdom. So how does Jesus conquer? How does he become king? How does he overthrow the ruler of this world? It is by dying like the grain of wheat. It is by being lifted up on the cross. That's how the king conquers. In so doing, he says, my kingdom will drastically multiply. It will multiply in scope. It is not just for a national people, but it is for all kinds of people. And it will multiply and reach because it will bring forth much fruit. This is something that Jesus repeatedly taught concerning his kingdom and often used the illustration of a seed falling into the ground and then springing up and becoming uh, something far greater than the small seed. So when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he will overthrow the dark rulers and authorities and he will be established as king of all. It seems paradoxical to our minds, but here is a suffering and dying Messiah who is saying, this is how we win. And then we see the extent of Jesus' rule, or, or who is Jesus king over? And we kind of answered that question with what I just said. John shows the extent of the rulership of the Messiah King is over all kinds of people. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That is a people from every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. To the apparent dismay of the unbelieving Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, Jesus had come to establish a kingdom that would look totally different than an overthrow of the Roman oppressors and an establishment of a national Jewish kingdom. Jesus came to overthrow the true oppressor, and that is the oppressor of sin and the ruler of darkness. And he came to establish an eternal kingdom and a kingdom that would be from every people group, every tribe, every nation, every language on earth. Jesus is king over all. So John shows us that Jesus is the anticipated Messiah King who will conquer through the humble means of death on the cross and establish a kingdom of all kinds of people, including Jews and Gentiles. And I think we are wise to ask, what does that, what does that mean for us? And I think it means a, a multitude of things, but I don't, talk, I don't have time to talk about all of those things that it means. 
But let me talk about a few. First, I think that we should anticipate the return of our Messiah, our King. Just, the, just as the occupants of, uh, uh, and Passover visitors were caught up in the power of that moment that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, I think we also should be anxiously anticipating the return of our Messiah. They're looking toward the Mount of Olives and they see Jesus coming in and their hearts are raptured and they pour out into the streets and begin to wave palm branches. We ought to capture some of that anticipation. We know that our Messiah is coming and he will set all things right one day. And so we should be anticipating the return of our Messiah. Now, we currently do not feel the oppression of a Roman government in the way that the Jewish people were feeling it. But I think we feel a greater oppression, a greater weight of the oppression of sin. Both our sin, right, and the sins of others as it affects us. We languish under the consequences of sin. But behold, our King comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our coming Messiah. Anticipate the return of your Messiah. Do not despair, beloved believer. Christ will come. We are assured of this. We know it for a fact. And Christ will deliver us finally, fully, and ultimately from our great oppressor, sin. As a matter of fact, his first coming proved it. His first coming accomplished it and made it possible and made it a reality. We are simply awaiting the full and finalization of that realized kingdom. I think the text also tells us that we should accept Jesus for who he is. This is why they rejected him. They didn't get who he was. And so, because they didn't get who he was, they missed what he had come to do. And I think it's the same for us. Most folks who were caught up in, in that moment that we are reading about and talking about in the text missed the, the true power of that moment because they were hoping for something other than who Jesus was. And because of that, they missed the work he had come to accomplish. And I think that I think, beloved, this, this truth should admonish us as, as well. Often we have expectations of Jesus that are unbiblical, and so they're not met. We think Jesus is or ought to be something that he is not. We're dissatisfied with who he is. Or we're upset that he doesn't, he doesn't do what we thought he should have done, Right? And because we're dissatisfied with who he is, we often, in our dissatisfaction, in our anxiety, in our battling against this Messiah King, we miss what he is doing in us. So when Christ is working in those unexpected ways, when he is working through suffering, when he is working through what we might call our being crucified. Let us submit to who He is 
so that we can gain from what He is doing. And you know what He's ultimately doing? He is changing us into His likeness. The greatest purpose that we could have as human beings is being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it is in those unexpected times, in those ways that we think Jesus shouldn't be working when He is working and we're dissatisfied with who He is. Those are the times that He is working that greatest purpose in us. Changing us into His likeness. Bringing the utmost glory out of our sinful lives. Think about that. So we accept Jesus for who He is. And we gain from the work that He is doing. And finally, I think this text tells us, lift Jesus up. Jesus said that when He is lifted up on the cross, He will draw all kinds of people to Himself. He was lifted up on the cross. And so all the tribes of the earth are invited to come to this fountain of grace and forgiveness. And this means that it is our job then to lift up the lifted up Jesus. We lift up the lifted up Jesus in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the spheres of our influence. And we need to preach the crucified and resurrected Jesus to every creature. That's what we've been commissioned to do. No one is excluded. We don't get to say, well, I'll preach the gospel to this person because I think that they could be saved. But I'm, I'm going to withhold the gospel from this person because I don't, I'm not sure that God could, could save them. No, Christ was lifted up and all kinds of people are drawn to him. We don't get to pick. We don't get to lift up the shirt and see if they've got a big red E on their back. That's, that's not the way that it works at all. Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross and He has invited all kinds of people to Himself. And so we preach the gospel. We're not sure who will and who won't, but that's not our job to determine. Our job is to lift up the lifted up Jesus. Whoever believes on Him will have eternal life. Isn't that what He said? So lift him up. Lift him up to king and peasant, to civilized and heathen, to young and old, to rich and poor. Lift him up to your boss. Lift him up to your co-worker. Lift him up to whoever will listen. And as hard as it is, lift him up to whoever won't listen. <laughs> lift Jesus up. He has been lifted up. And he said when he's lifted up, he will draw men to himself. If you've, if you've heard me talk, you've, you've heard me say that one of the ways that we share the gospel is uh, quickly by following the pattern of God, man, Christ response. Right? You don't have to make out this elaborate sermon to preach the gospel. Lift Jesus up in the simple way that you know how to lift him up. Tell people that God created man in his image, but man fell from that image. And it has uh, become inherently sinful. That sin has been passed down to him from Adam. That's why he is sinning or she is sinning because he or she is a sinner. But Christ has come. 
to be the Savior of sinners. He died on the cross bearing God's wrath against sinners in himself. He legitimately died and was buried in a tomb. But to prove that God had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, God raised him up. We'll celebrate that specifically and particularly next week. We celebrated every Lord's Day. And in raising him up, it assured us that all the sins of all of those who would believe on him were pardoned. And so the response then is, believe on Jesus Christ. Right? And so there it is. Lift Jesus up in that way. And if there's anyone here today who heard what I said and does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say to you, please, by all means, turn your eyes to this lifted up Jesus. He is your only hope of salvation. And I can assure you that if you come repenting and believing, that he will save you from your sin. Let's pray. God, you are, so, you, you are so good to us. Our hearts, our hearts, rather, are overwhelmed by your grace today. We have witnessed, Lord, three souls whom you, you have conquered. You have become their king. But, Lord, there was joy in their expression. There was joy in their faces today. Because you're not an oppressive king. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. Lord, your subjects delight in your kingship because you are humble. You are peaceable, Lord. You have made peace between us and God. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray, God, that we would continue to recognize you as such a king the king of kings the lord of lords the king of all lord not just a not just the king of a particular nation or people but king over all of those who would repent and believe and lord ultimately and fully and finally king over all of the universe. We anticipate that day, Lord, as we languish in our sin, in the consequences of sin. We turn our eyes to you, the lifted up King. And we anticipate your return, Lord, when you will set all things right. I pray, God, that you would let that ignite our hearts. Let the happenings of today ignite our hearts, Lord, to sharing the gospel to calling men to repentance, to lifting you up, to living out the gospel, and to, Lord, live joyous lives as we anticipate your return. We pray these things, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.